Hello and welcome to a new series of Airing Pain. Programmes brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity that provides information and support for those of us who live with pain. This edition has been enabled by a grant from Big Lottery Fund Awards for All, Scotland. The illness is an uninvited guest in the family. Their sexual side of their relationship was incredibly important to them and this had started to break down and she actually felt that he didn't want her anymore and that she was no longer attractive because of the cancer. We have to deal with this person who came into our home, which is we call pain, and it puts it out there so that all of us are relating to the issue of the pain, not just the person who's in physical pain, but this becomes something that everybody in the family has a relationship to this. And the conversation became not about how to fix my naughty boy son, it became about the impact of pain and fear on the family. Somebody corrected me a patient once and said, you know, it's not really a guest, I didn't invite them, this was an intruder, he broke into the house. <laughs> well, guest or intruder, when chronic pain enters the home, it takes over everyone's life, not just that of the person in pain. But the way relationships are managed will have a huge bearing on who stays in control, the pain or the people. So who can help put you rather than the pain in the driving seat? Well, earlier in the year, the Association for Family Therapy Scotland, in association with NHS Education for Scotland, organised a two-day workshop under the heading Family Perspectives on Illness and Multistress Challenges Facilitating Resilience and Growth Out of Illness, Crisis, Trauma and Loss. Jan Park is a family therapist working in the NHS. She's also Communications Officer for the Association for Family Therapy. Family Therapy is a way of working not just with the individual child or young person or adult who is experiencing difficulties in their lives, but with all the people who are important to them. And that might be family members, it might also be teachers, friends, whoever can help make a difference in their lives. And it's actually a way of freeing up people's strengths and building on their rich relationships that matter to them. It's like a pebble in a pond. The patient's the pebble going into the pond, but the ripples go round and round and affect everybody in concentric circles. And uh, it has a huge impact on the family. Dr Elaine McWilliams is a consultant clinical psychologist working with cancer patients and palliative care. And? From my own personal perspective, um, more recently I've become quite disabled in terms of... I, I look absolutely fine. If you look at me now, you wouldn't know, would you? And you're smiling. And I'm smiling. You really wouldn't know. I actually can walk about five minutes or stand for about five minutes and then I'm in agony. But I look absolutely fine. So how does that impact on the way you feel? I think it's become part of who I am. Um, I have good times, I have bad times. That's the truth. And my husband, we've been together now for uh, 19 years. And you've had the pain for 20 years? Over 20 years, yes, yes. And um, he knows when I'm struggling he can tell by the way I move I don't say anything I, I don't complain but he can tell just by the way I'm moving that I'm in a lot more pain but he would say that most other people wouldn't pick up the the, the, the subtle cues and so for example we had um, 
a visit down in London recently and I uh, wanted to go to see the Natural History Museum and there was no way that I could do that without loaning a wheelchair and so I was pushed around for five hours in a wheelchair and that was an interesting experience as well because part of me thinks I feel a bit of a fraud because actually I can stand up and walk. But that's the big thing. Having a wheelchair is like putting a big badge on mm, saying... I'm disabled, yeah. But were you treated, when you were in the wheelchair, were you treated as you wanted to be treated? I was treated very differently, very differently. I could almost tell by the look on some people's faces that they would look at me and think, well, you look OK, really. You don't look ill, you don't look... And, of course, occasionally I would get out of the wheelchair and stand up and go to the toilet, maybe, you know, or... And then people would look at you as, as if, you know, you're a bit of a phony, really, aren't you? This is a wind-up. This is a wind-up, yeah. And a very interesting experience being on a different level to everybody else as well. And people would occasionally, you know, bump into you, push into you, knock you, didn't see you. So how does your own experience, as somebody living with chronic pain, how does that fall into your job? Well, I feel I've got a little bit of street cred, really. <laughs> I mean, not that I burden my patients and families I work with with what's going on for me, but I feel I have a level of understanding of, of what it's like to live with pain and what it's like to try and manage pain and still try to have some normality, still continue to do the things that you want to do, still enjoy family events and I still want to host family events in my house I want people to come I want family to come I want to feed them entertain them and I see that with my patients as well they they want to carry on the families want to carry on as normal as possible but it's not just the events is it I I mean mean, you're talking about wanting to pick up your three-year-old child yes well okay there's the physical thing that you find it difficult but there's the guilt yes absolutely Absolutely. Um, If we go to a park, I feel I should be running round with him. And after, say, about five minutes at the moment, I go down on my haunches. That gives me some relief, and I pretend I'm looking for something in my bag because I don't want to stand out. I don't want to look unusual in the playground compared to other mums. So I'll I'll sort of ferret around in my bag pretending that, you know, just, just to get a little bit of relief. I see families, I see that in them as well, that the, the guilt that they can't do the things that they would like to do with maybe younger children, adolescents as well, and grown-up children where they'd like to be involved in grandparenting. As a psychologist, how do you help them through this? I listen to their story and the family story. It's really important for me to try and understand everybody's story in the family because it will all be slightly different and hopefully when I'm working with families where they may be struggling, they may be in crisis what I hope to do is to put all those stories together so that as a family they have a coherent story, they have a shared story, shared narrative Because going through, I mean let's say a nuclear the standard nuclear family right. a couple, he has chronic pain and he's going through cancer treatment, pain from the cancer, misery from the treatment. Yes. There's the wife yes. trying to cope with her own emotions. And she's terrified. 
She's absolutely terrified, but she doesn't want to show that, maybe. She wants to protect him, and he's trying to protect her, and they're probably trying to protect the children, and everybody's trying to protect everybody else, and nobody is able to speak. And I suppose what I try to do is help them to speak, to find a voice to share. Maybe not everything, because, you know, we're entitled to keep some things, but some things are not spoken about because people are trying to protect each other. Dr Elaine McWilliams, you're listening to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity that provides information and support for those of us who live with pain. Now, whilst we believe the information and opinions on Airing Pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now today we're talking about relationship issues surrounding chronic pain and a key speaker at the Association for Family Therapy Scotland workshop was Dr John Rowland. He's a physician and family psychiatrist at the University of Chicago. He's also co-director of the Chicago Centre for Family Health. He adopts what he calls a resilience approach. Resilience is the, we don't think of it just as bouncing back from something, which means to try to stay where you are and get back, but actually bouncing forward. How can you actually become stronger than you were before the illness? You become to observe more the preciousness of life. So again, some people, I'm interested in how people develop this ability or have this ability, and our work is to help families sort of draw on their resources. So maybe at the start of somebody developing chronic pain, in a, in a standard family, say, husband, wife, two children in their teens, whatever, there are four people with completely different outlooks on what is happening to that unit. And firstly, there's the husband who has the pain. Okay. Well, let's say it's the wife who has the pain. Right. The husband may go into himself and thinking, how do I cope with what's going on? He'll have his own anger. She might have guilt over not being able to cook or work. Mm -hmm. The children might be feeding off how the parents are maybe dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. That is four separate scenarios. How do you bring it together? I try to help a family first understand how it works as a family. So, you know, how do you normally communicate? What are the limits of communication? Uh, Often with a physical problem, in this case in an adult, it pushes families or parents to think about how do they communicate with their children uh, that might be different than before somebody was in pain or somebody had a physical problem. It forces sometimes more openness or kids have questions. Is this going to get worse? Could you die from this? Uh, Did I cause it? I mean, there's lots of initial questions. So I'm interested in how, first of all, how the family communicates. How do they divide up who does what? Because sometimes families have to get more creative if if I'm in pain today, then I cannot do what maybe some of the things I normally would do. There has to be somebody else who can do that. So for, you know, in a traditional family with a husband and wife, how they have divided their roles may have to be reconsidered. But I mean, family isn't just about roles, is it? No. Who, who does what? Well, let's say we've got a teenage boy going through all that teenage stuff. Mm-hmm. Teenagers and children can press a button... To, we have an expression to wind you up. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
that's not a, a role, but that is no. what teenagers do. Right. So one of the things that I help families think about is where, where is everybody in their development? Because if it's a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, this is different than a 5-year-old and a 3-year-old. One of the things that gets more complicated when there's a physical problem in a family is sometimes anger is an expression of fear. Could this happen to me or could I lose you? So sometimes my experience is when anger is being expressed in the family, sometimes it's also because they are suffering or they are anxious about what might happen. So families need sometimes some assistance to reinterpret feelings. And with adolescents, it's very, it's very difficult. I work with, for instance, adolescents who have diabetes. Well, if they are irritable and oppositional and have behavior problems, this could be because their blood sugar is too low. This could be because they have a chronic illness and realize that they're going to grow up into adulthood and they will have this disease for the rest of their life and that makes them you know, more angry. Or this could be just average adolescent, what did you call it? Uh, wind you up behavior. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, sometimes this gets confusing and families have to learn like what is coming from the illness, what comes from the pain, what is really an expression of something else. Because sometimes it can easily become that issues in the family can get expressed through somebody's symptoms. Because symptoms get worse if there's a lot of strain. People who are in pain, if there's a lot of stress, your pain usually gets worse. Pain is also invisible. So how one communicates about pain is complicated. If I say I'm in pain, you might not... How are you going to question whether I am in pain? Sometimes physical symptoms start to have a currency. Or if parents are fighting, if a child has asthma and starts to get a difficulty breathing, the parents will stop fighting and focus on the child. The child learns... I can make the family calm if I get my symptoms. That's right, but the child can also, and they're very, very good at this, work out that I can control my parents if I get yes. the symptoms. Yes, that's possible, but often the child is afraid that if, if the parents keep fighting, they, will, they may not stay together, something terrible will happen. So it's not fair to say it's always manipulation. Sometimes children, first of all, truly their symptoms get worse if they are watching conflict elsewhere in the family. But also they can start to use that as a way to calm the family down. Family psychiatrist and co-director of the Chicago Centre for Family Health, Dr John Rowland. Now his example focused on the child in the family who is ill. However, a child who is not ill but has to deal with the situation of someone else in the family who is, has a different set of issues to deal with. Family therapist Jan Parker. This is a, a family that I worked with a few months ago. And the young boy, who was 12 at the time, had been referred because of his violent, aggressive and challenging behaviour at home and at school. And, I mean, it was quite extreme what this kid was um, getting up to and doing and the levels of distress that he was displaying and also that he was causing others. Adults were beginning to be frightened of the force of his temper and also the destructive power of that within the family and within school. And he was at risk of being chucked out of school yet again. Uh, he came with a very individual 
individualized referral information. You know, this child is a this, this child is a that, he's done this, he's done that. When we brought the family together to talk about how we might work well and most usefully with them, it turned out that his youngest sister was in remission from a long-term, good number of years of cancer treatment. Things were going well for her, but the family focus had gone necessarily onto this young girl. And around the time, through the years of her treatment and recovery, this young boy's very, very favourite grandparent, a grandmother, had died. And by getting together and talking through and doing like a kind of family map of what had happened when and who was important to whom and what relationships were in the family, who was close to whom and what relationships had had fallen further away, the mother realised that she found it quite difficult to even begin to describe what had happened with her relationship with her son because she felt that she'd lost him. She also talked of fearing that she would lose her daughter and also the experience of feeling so helpless and at a loss of what to do when her daughter was experiencing pain and not being able to help and how stripping away of her sense of worth and value and competency as a parent that had been and about the experience of handing over her young child to a team of professionals to care for, how that had rocked her relationships with her own self-image, her relationship with her husband, how her focus and her vision had kind of come a bit kind of tunnel-visioned on her daughter. And just being able to all gather together, the conversation became not about how to fix my naughty boy son, it became about the impact of pain and fear on the family. And they came back again once and said, of course, they had a long way to go, but they had realised that how pain had kind of shrunk their possibilities and sense of what they could do in the world together. And they had felt buffeted and depleted by it. And just having a pause and pulling back and looking at the wider picture had enabled them to begin to see where they wanted to reconnect and make steps to do that. And it was such a joy to see them come back. They'd been to Pizza Hut, they'd started just to work at connecting again and just doing things like playing Scrabble as a family. And this lad was still, I don't think he's ever going to be an angel, but he felt he had a place again. He felt he had a belonging again. And his sister's experience of pain and the family's experience of their pain in relationship to that had kind of shoved him to the periphery and they were making steps to come back together. Jan Parker of the Association for Family Therapy. Dr Elaine McWilliams again. I was based in a hospice and um, we had someone who was going to be admitted... And there was a lot of concern. I think this goes wider than the family. This now goes to the professional family, if you like, who also had a diagnosis of manic depression. Um, And because I'm a mental health professional, they were very keen for me to um, support this. And they were actually very nervous. 
and there was a lot of concerns. So I said, okay, I, I will put aside two days my diary for this person coming in so that I can um, meet the patient herself, I can meet the family, I can then talk to the staff and I can be there to support this. So um, that's what I did and, and, and I met the patient and, you know, her mental health diagnosis had nothing to do with where she was or her pain, and, and I mean total pain. It had nothing to do with that, really. Her concern was about leaving her beloved daughters, adult daughters who had children of their own. But nevertheless, that was where her real pain was. It wasn't really about her recurrence or the fact that she could not long now be cured. It, it was about leaving her babies, her girls, and how would they be? And she was... A, this was a very matriarchal family. Mum was the centre, the hub. And there was a lot of love in this family. So I, I spoke to the daughters and heard their stories. And then I got them all together and got them to share their stories. And then I went to speak to the staff and reassured them and listened to their concerns. And we had a really successful um, intervention we managed her pain, which had been unmanageable in the community. And the, the family had been making lots of demands on professionals because they were anxious, they were scared, they were frightened. They didn't have a kind of roadmap, if you like, of what was happening and what was going to happen. She was discharged home and I supported uh, the daughters. She actually didn't really need much more input from me supported the daughters in what was to come and where they were going and, and their concerns and anxieties. And actually the level of requests for input once they were back in the community went right down, right down. They managed really well as a family. They were communicating again. They were talking about how they wanted to protect them, each other. That was really a lovely piece of work. You know, I have to say, I, I was just amazed by the resilience in the family. Once they'd had a little bit of support and understanding, huge amount of resilience, and, and they coped so well, they really did. Sometimes what happens is also if one person is in pain, then the other family members feel, well, we shouldn't do things that he can't do because then we'll make him feel bad. Actually paradoxically, that's not good for the family because if everybody gives up all these things because they don't want dad to feel bad because he can't walk in the woods anymore, then people get angry and then people feel like the disease is taking, you know, the, now the pain is controlling everybody's life. In marital relationships, this is very important. If the well spouse who's not in pain gives up everything, they can become very resentful not only are they providing caregiving, but they can't do what they want. It's much better, I think, for the couple to negotiate that, you know, maybe once a week the spouse or partner who does not have the pain goes, does something with a friend that maybe they would have done with their husband, but so that they feel that the disease isn't, it isn't controlling them. This actually is healthy for the relationship, and it's part of what I have to help couples with is that they may have to define allowing more separateness at times, to preserve the marriage. One of the areas that I feel is maybe neglected as well is about um, how pain interferes with intimate relationships, sexual relationships. 
but real intimacy as well. These things, are, I think, are difficult to talk about as well. And it's one of the things that I try to open up a conversation with, with patients, if I can. So how do you do that? I, I, I ask, how is your relationship with your husband? How is your relationship with your wife in terms of your intimate relationship? And if they say, well, do you mean sex? And I'll say, well, everything, including that. I remember working with a couple who were in their 80s. I have permission from all of my patients to use some of the information in anonymous form for teaching and other purposes. And I wrote a paper that was published on this, which was looking at these issues of intimacy and attachment and the sexual side of intimacy. And for this couple, they had hit a crisis. She had a terminal diagnosis, but she was reasonably stable at this time and quite well. Her pain had been managed, but there was other pain. And the uh, medical nursing team came to me and said, could you kind of see this patient? I I wanted to see them as a couple, and, and they were happy to do that. And it emerged that the sexual side of their relationship was incredibly important to them and always had been. And this had started to, to break down. And she, she actually felt that he didn't want her anymore and that she was no longer attractive because of the cancer. He actually felt that he couldn't approach her um, in terms of you know, full intimacy because he was frightened of hurting her. So they had these two stories, if you like, but they hadn't shared them. So they shared them, and we talked about that, and that changed things, and and they were much happier. I later saw them a couple of times afterwards, and, and they were doing really well. She actually didn't need as much pain medication after that. She eventually did die, and I, I saw the husband a few times afterwards, and he was doing okay. He was deeply, deeply grieving, but his memories of the last few months of their relationship together had been good, and it could have been very, very different. Dr Elaine McWilliams. So how widely available are family therapy services Jan Parker of the Association for Family Therapy. It's very much still, unfortunately, a postcode lottery. It's usually there somewhere if you know how to ask for it. There's information available on the AFT UK website at www.aft.org.uk about how to find a family therapist, what routes to take, who to ask if you feel that it would be helpful to you. There is also information about what family therapy is and professionals find that useful as well as family members. But I'm getting the impression that the family therapist only comes in when things are identified as having gone wrong. Wouldn't it be better for somebody in the system to start with a family therapist, listen, your child, Mm. your husband Mm. is in chronic pain, this isn't going to go away. Absolutely. Let's start here because this is what you're going to face. Yes, yes. And I think that's a, a, a hugely important point. Again, in some areas and in some services, that is beginning to happen because it makes common sense that the family resources are brought together to support the person in pain and those who are going to support them. 
And in some areas, it's just not happening. So it's a question of political will and also a shift in service mindset. We've still, in this country, got a very individualised, medicalised model that places any situation, any suffering, any circumstances within the individual. Things are changing, thankfully, and there is a real sea change in attitude, but it is yet to roll into a kind of revolution of practice and service delivery that would actually make a real difference. You know, it's patchy still. Jan Parker, and here's that web address for the Association of Family Therapy again. It's aft.org.uk. That's aft.org.uk. And I'd just like to remind you that you can put a question to our panel of experts or make a comment about our programmes via our blog, message board, email, Facebook or Twitter. And all the details, including the address to write to if you prefer good old-fashioned pen and paper, and the link to download all editions of Airing Pain, are at our website. And that's painconcern, one word, painconcern.org.uk. I'll leave you with family therapist Jan Parker. Families will enter the room looking a little bit like it's a group trip to the dentist because they have a sense that they have come to have their problems investigated. That they've done something wrong. That they've done something wrong and that our job as family therapists is to kind of rip that out and fix them. Families feel very relieved and heartened by the experience of the process, which is very different. It's about families having opportunity to recognise their strengths and their resiliences, what they have gone through together, and to draw on those and build on those. And every day I feel very humbled to witness what people can do together.